So one of the reasons that I started this podcast was really to um, give veterans a safe space to to tell their story, um, talk about the challenges that they face day to day. Um, you know, whether that is dealing with family challenges, dealing with um, reintegration into the civilian world, and um, you know, just some of the struggles that they that they encountered day to day. Uh, as you know, mental health among military members um, is a, definitely a significant concern. Uh, the unique stressors of the jobs that we face when we're in service, um, things like deployment, combat exposure, long separation from family, um, and just the the basic pressure or responsibilities that we got to deal with while we're actively uh, engaged in a combat situation most times. Um, it, you know, all those things can contribute to things like PTSD, depression, anxiety. Um, one of the more common things is substance abuse. And that's one of the, the more transparent, uh, issues that we kind of face. Um, and, you know, knowing firsthand how, uh, how those things directly affect, uh, family, kids, uh, neighbors, coworkers, uh, is a big deal. So, you know, part of why I wanted to start this is because I understand that recognizing and addressing the issues uh, is very important. And there are a ton of support groups, programs, counseling, mental health services, um, and, and resources out there. All those things are out there. And it's crucial that we, uh, you know, we take care of each other and get the information to one another. Uh, you know, I do understand and, and I, I, I know over the past um, few years and even just a few years before COVID, uh, the military has been increasingly focusing on mental health awareness and providing resources uh, to support their, their personnel. But a lot of times we as um, former military members, we're a little bit reluctant to seek that, that help. So, um, you know, I felt that it was my duty to help out my fellow brother and sisters in arms um, as I'm on my own journey for, uh, you know, uh, taking care of my, my own mental health. I felt that it was my duty to, to reach out and do my part to try to help, you know, as many veterans as I possibly can. And with that said, um, I know I mentioned a few episodes ago that I was going to have a, a mental health professional come in. Well, she is here. Uh, Victoria Grimm. She's also an Air Force veteran. She served seven years on active duty in the Air Force. Uh, most of that time was spent in um, overseas. And I mean, she has a wealth of knowledge and, you know, comes from a veteran's perspective and, and not only a veteran's perspective, but a female service member. So we get a, you know, a couple different aspects of what it's like to deal with um, adversity in the military. And this first meeting with her, of hopefully many, many meetings as we dive deeper and deeper into um, how we can help one another and how family members can help their their service member. Um, this first one was just kind of to get an understanding of um, the, the troubles that we face when it comes to mental health, especially around this time of year, you know, with Christmas coming up pretty soon. 
um, you know, we had Thanksgiving and I'm sure that they're, you know, in the current climate politically um, and globally that we're in, there there are a lot of touchy subjects that people don't want to um, communicate on because it, it causes increased stress. And if you're already suffering from anxiety or depression or PTSD, adding uh, alcohol or drugs into the mix along with heated debates and heated conversations with family members or friends, it can it can be really, really troubling. So um, I'm glad that we finally were able to get her in. And it's, it is, again, like I said, the first of many conversations that we will have with her. So sit back and enjoy. And um, again, if you guys have any feedback or anything, any questions that you, you have that you want to uh, you want us to address, then um, please send them my way and we'll get it taken care of. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Day Room Podcast. Um, today, this is the moment that everybody's been anticipating. I've been, uh, Victoria and I have been kind of going back and forth for what, two months? <laughs> it's been a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so we finally got her on. Miss um, Victoria Grimm, U.S. Air Force veteran, um, served seven years on active duty in the Air Force as a broadcast journalist. Um, well, welcome, Victoria. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes. Yeah, so military in my former life, at least that's what it feels like now. Um, currently a licensed associate, marriage and family therapist. I own an office, my own therapy practice called Align Counseling in Gilbert, Arizona. Awesome. Awesome. Um, now we got a we got a couple of minutes, so I do want to kind of delve into um, some of the duty stations that we were talking about prior to, to uh, recording. Shaw Air Force Base, um, that was your your first duty station out of training. It was okay. Mm -hmm. and w well, first, where'd you where'd you do your broadcast journalist training? So my training was done on Fort Meade in Maryland, and um, so my. My tech school, as we call it in the Air Force, I was with the Navy, the Army, and Marines. Okay. And you did, do you guys call it basic training or boot camp in the Air Force? I feel like it's referred to as both. Yeah. yeah. Um, and where was that? That was in San Antonio, Texas at Lackland Air Force Base. From Shaw. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Shaw. What, what was your experience there? I think that was the first time I had visited the South. And so I guess living in the South, um, I had primarily grown up in California and Washington. And so I just remember being immersed into a totally different culture, like learning about like what hush puppies are and sweet tea. <laughs> and I definitely gained, I think like 15 pounds at my first duty station, just because I was like, this food is amazing. And I ate a lot of it. Um, my time at Shaw, it was really short and man, just like, that's your first introduction to the military after you have, you know, the structure of, um, basic training and tech school. Um, and so I was just really trying to kind of settle in, get an understanding of what the heck is even going on, having to deal with all sorts of different personalities, um, having to you know, learn, oh yeah, like even though we're no longer in tech school, 
or basic training, like people are still going to yell at you, um, even though I work in an office. Uh, so really just trying to, to get a sense of what did I sign up for and what is my life going to look like? <laughs> now, what made you, uh, what made you choose the MOS you chose? It's not something that a lot of people think about when they, they think military. No, totally. I think most people don't even know or understand that that's a role that you can have, even though it's been around since like the very beginning. Um, so when I had quite a bit of time working with the recruiter because I was in high school when um, I made the decision to go into the military. And so they gave me a list of jobs and we're like, hey, you know, basically choose what you want especially because you can wait to, to be put in that slot. And so I had scored well on the ASVAB and they wanted to put me into an electrical job because I had scored so high in that category. And I'm really glad I didn't choose an electrical job because I would have been working on jets and I, I, I would have hated that personally. Um, and so they had told me about this like broadcasting role. I was like, that sounds kind of cool. Um, and so you had to submit like a, a voice audition, um, cause they don't just take anyone in those slots, especially for a broadcaster. And I passed it and I was lucky enough to get a slot just about two months after I graduated from high school. That's awesome. Now, where, where, where'd you go to high school? Cause you, you mentioned you grew up in between California and Washington. Yeah, and I guess I also grew up in upstate New York um, too. Kind of about that one. Sometimes that's a place you want to forget about. Um, <laughs> but my so, <laughs> I was born in, in California. My dad joined the army. We were stationed at Fort Drum, and then later on we moved to Washington State. He went guard or reserve. I can't remember which one. Um, so I went to high school in Washington State. Okay, what city in Washington? Vancouver, Washington. Okay, so down south so coast like, of Portland. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The pretty part of Washington. Yeah, no, it is the pretty part of Washington. It just rains a lot, and yeah, I I don't love the rain. <laughs> <laughs> so from Shaw, this is when the overseas time starts. Um, I'm familiar with Kunsan because I used to have to go down there quite a bit from Camp Humphreys. Um, talk to me a little bit about Kunsan because I know. With the army, when people avoided Korea like the plague, they were trying to get away. But I had my the, the most fun both times I was in Korea. What was the experience like for you? So I wanted to be overseas. Like when I joined the Air Force, I was like, I want I want to be stationed overseas. And so it was disappointing when my first duty station was Shaw Air Force Base because I was like, like why like South Carolina? Like what the heck? Um, However, just like you said, a lot of people don't want to go to South Korea. And I get it, especially if you have a family, you have kids, you know, it's a remote duty station. Um, and so I was like a last minute slot, like whatever they had to do, like they chose me. So I think I found out I was actually getting to move off base. I had like done my time living on the base and I was putting a deposit down on an apartment. And then I received the notification, oh, you're going to South Korea. And my supervisor had actually just, I think, 
she had been to South Korea. And so we had talked about it a little bit. Um, but I had been told like, oh, you're going to be stuck at Shaw Air Force Base. Like you're not going to be able to go overseas. You're going to be stuck here forever. Wow. Um, and so it was really surprising to get that notification, but I received that notification. I want to say in like April and I left in August. Yeah. So it was very last minute and I obviously did not get the apartment. Um, and I just packed all my stuff up and got ready to go on an adventure that I was terrified for. Um, cause it wasn't long before that, um, where a vessel had been like bombed by North Korea, like a South Korean vessel, um, and it sank. And so that was like, I want to say within like a, man, I think it was even shorter than a year time frame where that happened. And so I just remember seeing like on the news, all this bad information about like North Korea and South Korea. And I'm like, they're sending me here. Like I'm going from South Carolina to South Korea. Like that's terrifying. <laughs> what year do you remember what year that was? Yeah, I left in August of 2011. Um, but once you got to Kumsan, like what were you thinking? Oh, it's really humid here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I think that, you know, getting in there in the summertime. Um, I think I was surprised by how welcoming everyone was like at Kunsan especially it was just like one big family and like the public affairs shop there they were very welcoming because I was stationed at AFN um and so I was primarily with army at that time there were more air force came but it was just a lot of army um and so yeah it it just kind of felt like you had instant friends yeah, I think a place like Korea that's um, an unaccompanied tour will do that to you. I know I remember my first tour. I was nervous. I was terrified. 19-year-old kid, um, never really been away from California and my family for that that long. I thought basic training and going to um, AIT, going from Oklahoma to Georgia was an adventure. And then I get to Pyeongtaek, Korea, South Korea, and... Mm-hmm. It, I mean, you, you, you don't understand anything. You can't read any of the signs. You have no clue, um, where you're going or what's happening. And then you just get welcomed in. I, I, I also got there, I believe the end of August. So I, I think I was there. Um, I got into the barracks on Labor Day weekend. So it was, the barracks were empty when I checked in. So I just caught up on sleep. And then the next day I hear this loud music playing and everybody's in the barracks just partying and drinking and from there it was just it's like hey you're part of the crew now but I think that's yeah one great thing about those types of tours you know you everybody's in the same boat so you um you know you you're you might as well just enjoy it and and latch on to one another yeah no absolutely and Overall, I really did enjoy my time in South Korea. Um, I, I absolutely loved the food, loved Korean barbecue. Um, I, I wish I had traveled around a little bit more than I did, um, but I would go up to Seoul often. And yeah, I, I love the culture there. Um, but then also the culture 
in Korea, especially on the base, is drinking. Yes. And so that there was a lot of time spent doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be bashful. <laughs> no, there that was no. when when I whenever I had to go down to Kunsan, it was typically for work. So I didn't get <laughs> mm-hmm. to enjoy any of that stuff. But um I did party a lot with the Air Force folks at Suwon and Osan and up at um, mm-hmm. up in Seoul. And Osan, wow. I, if, did you ever get to go to Osan while you were there? Oh, I went to Osan a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That it for those people that have never been to Korea, Osan, I, I actually felt like I was on a college campus. Like <laughs> literally felt like I was on a college campus. The food was amazing on base. Then you leave the base and it's just party. Everything's right there. Yeah, everything yeah. is right there. And so were you, so you you did go like on to Kunsan? Oh yeah. Yeah. I went to Kunsan. Okay. I, I went to Kunsan quite a bit. Um, but like I said, it was mostly just for work. I was a communication specialist when I was going down to Kunsan. Mm. Um so I would go down and uh reload the uh secure communicating devices for um artillery units down there so every month i would i would have to go down there and sometimes twice a month because their uh their devices would kick out the the comsec so i'd have to go mm-hmm. drive back down there to refill it and make sure that they had secure communications in case something went on with north korea we were all on the same page yeah so did you experience the hooches when you were there um like where we stayed? Like on Kunsan. No. Okay. So one of the unique things about Kunsan is that they have hooches. And so most squadrons have a hooch. You can just think of it essentially as like a clubhouse where there's just drinking and partying going on. Um, so like the culture of Kunsan when you're on it is just like, I mean, Korea, I feel like the motto, and we can extend that to the military too, is just like work hard, play hard. Um, but it was like a different level of playing hard at Kunsan. Yeah. Nope. I didn't get to experience that. Like I said, (laughs) usually when I went down there, it was for a purpose. Um, and my main focus was to go and eat in the dining facility because it was one of the best dining facilities on the peninsula that, that I can remember. I mean, it will pretty much every air force base that you go to, the food is just top notch. And the dudes have chef hats and <laughs> you go into an army dining facility, they're in BDUs and you know, <laughs> they're just regular mm-hmm. army people. Now the next, your next two duty stations are what I'm anxious to hear about. Um, so from Korea, did you, you didn't come back to the States at all. You just went from, um, Oconus to Oconus, like you went from mm-hmm. wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so from Kunsan, you land where? In Germany, I think I just landed at Ramstein. Yeah, I think I think they flew us into Ramstein okay. Air Force Base. And let me let me back up because I don't. When you were on Kunsan, is that where the station was? Mm-hmm. That is, I didn't even know that. I I, I watched, uh, well, we called it A farts. <laughs> um, what is it, Army or 
Armed Forces Radio something or other, mm -hmm. AFRTS. Um, I didn't know they were on Kunsan. I thought they were in Yongsan. They, they're both. They're in both locations. Okay. Get to Ramstein. And then where, where were you, like, ultimately housed at in Germany? So in terms of, like, where I worked or where like, I was living? Oh, you lived off base, right, in Germany? I did. I did. Um, yeah, I ended up, like, in for people who know that area, I lived in Lundstuhl up near the castle. Okay. So it's not it's not too often you're gonna say, "Hey, I lived walking distance to it, like an old castle." That is wild. <laughs> did you did you go hang out there? Like, were you able to tour the castle or anything? Because I know a lot of people will go and see these things, and they're just more interested in partying. And then they get home and they're like, "Man, I wish I would have gone to do this." Yeah. Yeah. So when I say castle, like it was like a decrepit castle, right? So um, it was falling apart, but like, yeah, you could go walk, kind of walk around it. Um, and that whole area was just kind of felt like foresty. There were, it was just really great to go out there and like sit and um, just kind of like be alone with your thoughts and like walking trails. Um, so I think that's one thing I really enjoyed about Germany was one, it's absolutely beautiful. It's lush and green. Um, and there's just, you know, lots of like walking, walking around. Um, but when I was in Germany, I took advantage of traveling um, and traveling just like all over Europe. Uh, I think I traveled a little bit for work. Did I? Sometimes I get Germany and England mixed up, but I did travel a bit for work when I was in Germany as well. Um, but it was primarily just like personal travel Yeah, that I did. That's mm -hmm. one of the, the things that I missed out on was being stationed in Europe, like when I was younger and being able to travel um, as a single person. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my cousin is over in Germany and he's actually, he messaged me the other day saying he may move back to the States, but he's been there for over 20 years. And oh wow, yeah, and I mean, he's all over the place all the time. One day he'll be in Poland, next day he'll be in Prague. I mean, it's wild, yeah. I mean, it's it's so easy, right? Because a lot of those places you can just drive to. And did you have a car while you were in Germany? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I did. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I actually ended up driving when I was, uh, I drove to England. From Germany. Like when I, yeah, when I moved bases, um, I like drove my car and myself, well, I guess. How? <laughs> I'm the one driving the car, but yeah. How long did that take? I think I, I think I, just like two days, I drove to Belgium, stayed the night there, and then drove the rest of the way. So I'm trying to think, did you have to take a ferry? I'm guessing mm -hmm. from yep. France. Yes, Calais, Calais, I think, yeah. is, like, the station, the port. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Calais, France, I think it is. And then, yeah, they drop you off in England, and then suddenly... So, when I was stationed in Germany, I I bought a Jeep, and so Germany, it's a, you drive on the same side of the road that you drive here in the United States, 
So I'm in an American car and then I land in England and suddenly I just have to adapt to driving on the opposite side of the road in an American vehicle. Yeah. Now, how crazy is that? That was going to be my next question. I was freaked out. I was freaked out. It was windy. Like I could just feel like the wind, like blowing the car. Um, once you're out of the city and, you know, it's just kind of like a regular highway, uh, that you would have like anywhere else, but there's just like that surreal feeling of like, I'm just in a totally new country now. Um, I really hope I don't screw up and start driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, so it was an adjustment. I think I adjusted pretty fairly, fairly quickly, but there was just that sense of, I really hope I don't screw this up. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a friend that lives in, in England and I took the kids over to visit with her and her family. And, you know, you take the tube, um, ride the bus. Mm -hmm. So the kids and I did that. And then she wanted to drive us to the grocery store. And that was the, the strangest thing to get into the car on the driver's side. Like what would be the driver's side for us? No steering wheel. And it, I'm like, my brain couldn't figure it out that we're going the wrong way. And I'm on this side, I'm looking at cars passing me, you know, over, (laughs) over here and I'm, I'm freaking out. And I, Immediately, because I was going to rent a car when we got back to London, and I'm like, nope, no, I'm, I'm just going to let them do it. it. I was terrified. So, how long? How long did it take you to get used to that? I'm sure, probably after a week, I was fine. Oh, see, she's better than me because I would have, I'd have been stressed out. Well, now, like driving in England stressed me out. I mean, I got used to Germany, but. Anytime that you're in Europe and you're driving and you get up to the, like a, they have huge roundabouts there where like, we're talking like multiple lanes in the roundabout. And so when you live there and you live there for a few years, you, you really do become like an expert of like the roundabout system and you understand why they're so great and why they should be everywhere. But they're intimidating because cars will be going so fast. And if you have to wait to get into like the inside lane, you know, you could then like be backing up traffic. And so there was a, like a main roundabout near, um, RAF Lake and Heath that like most people would go through if they wanted to get to like a few different destinations, which is where like most people would live. And, uh, it would always be backed up because you have Americans trying to use a roundabout and they don't know how to use it. Well, as I'm sure if you drive around the valley here, there are some places that have new roundabouts. And it is amazing to me that people just don't understand how to enter and exit the roundabout. It's, it's oh, mind-blowing. Yeah. But when I lived in Rome, it was the same thing. That I didn't drive for the first maybe three months I was there just because I, I was – like you see the roundabout. I watched a bus just – plow into the roundabout and and just go, I'm like, there's, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to do this. But once I started driving there, like you said, you know, you kind of just, you know what, what to do and what not to do. And if you stop, you're holding up traffic and now people are mad at you. Exactly. And then 
the difference between the roundabouts in Germany versus England is when you signal. So in some countries you signal as you enter the roundabout and in other countries you signal as you exit the roundabout. And so that's, I think the thing that infuriates me about roundabouts in America and especially like if you go up to Sedona, I, anytime I'm up there, I'm like, you people, like, you don't know what <laughs> you're doing. You're not signaling. You're acting out of control and crazy. Um, and it's not that hard. Yeah. It, it, people, they just make it seem like it's this weird ass math equation. It's like, yeah. get in, get out. You know, the sign yeah, says yield. Go. Yield to the cars that are in the roundabout. Once that car passes, if you got an entrance, get in there. Don't wait. Yeah. Yeah. People drive me crazy. Oh. <laughs> and I do I do Uber, so I'm I'm dealing with it day in and day out. Mm. Now England was where you left service, right? I did. I did. Um I think I was in England for two years and I just got to the point where I'm like, yeah, I think my time is done. Um I was and when I first got to England, I was in the process of trying to finish my degree. Uh, and I thought that I wanted to uh, commission and, and be an officer. And that was my plan. But then I started just having uh, issues with my hips. Um, I ended up having two hip surgeries while I was stationed in England. And I there were just I had quite a few things happen like professionally and personally during my time in England. And I was just like, no, like, I think I'm just done with this. So I, I've been kind of talking to a lot of folks that are getting out now. Um, Mm -hmm. and they've transitioned the way that the retirement is paid out. Is that correct? Like how your pension. So I think, I think they made, they made that change when I had already left. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I was thinking, you hit seven years and had you stayed in or even commissioned, you'd be retiring what in two years? No, it'd be more than that. I think, um, I joined in Oh nine. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I joined in Oh nine. So I would still have, I would still have too much time yeah. from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And yeah. so you, you finish up your degree and what your degree in. So my, my bachelor's degree was in business administration. Okay. Walk me through leaving the military and then um, starting on the path that you're on now. So I finished up my degree as I was getting out of the military. Um, I gift myself for, I guess, being in the military, getting out. Um, I took a trip with my friend to Thailand. And so I flew from the Heathrow Airport to Bangkok. And we spent some time in Thailand and then I flew back to England and then the next day got on a plane to fly to Seattle. At least I think I flew to Seattle and that's just, I feel like a good summary of my life is like, I'm not just going to do things like make things easy on myself. Right. We're just going to add in all these extra steps. Uh, and that, yeah. Um, so I, I was happy to go take a trip to, to just be somewhere else overseas before I made that change. Um, 
back to America. And so when I left the military, I was 25 and, and I think it's even taken a few years to really have this understanding of like, I spent most of my like young adult life living overseas. And so there's so much that I just missed, um, of just like pop culture of what was happening in the States. Um, just an awareness of shifts, culture changes. And so when I did come back to the States, I was nervous and I wasn't sure like, Hey, do I actually want to go back? Um, I think I was trying to avoid, I was like, maybe I'll just go to Vietnam and like teach, teach English. Um, and just like extend my time to try to figure out like what I'm doing with my life. Um, so I got back right before the holiday season in 2016, I just spent the first few months of my time um, visiting friends, visiting family who were in different parts of the States. Uh, And I had made the decision prior to moving back that I was going to move to Colorado. I had never lived in Colorado before. I had visited it once. um, And I was just like, yep, nope. I'm I'm no longer going to live in a place where you see more rain and clouds than you do sunshine. For those who have been to England or have lived in England, you understand how depressing of a place it can become where you have on average a hundred days of sunshine, or it might even be like under a hundred days of sunshine. And so I was like, I I can't do that anymore. And um, I ended up moving to Colorado and I got to Colorado and I decided to take a few courses, I wanted to make sure that, Hey, do I actually like want to become a therapist? And if I do like, what route do I take? Because there's so many different paths to be able to do what I do now. And so I was like, do I get a PhD? Do I get a master's degree? Like, what does that even look like? So to kind of fill that gap, um, I probably spent a year just taking some college courses in like family studies and psychology just to make sure, do I actually want to do this? And then trying to figure out what that path even looked like for me. Um, I ended up deciding to pursue a marriage and family therapy program, um, which was a master's degree because I realized what ultimately like what I want to do, I don't need a PhD for. Um, I also don't want to go spend like five years in school just to be able to do this job. Yeah. And like, there's really no like right or wrong way to do it. It's just like, for me, that's what was best. And I also pursued my route um, because I knew that I wanted to work with couples. And at that time I was thinking like maybe families, um, but I don't really actually work with many families now. So what, what's your, your uh, primary uh, client base? Yeah. So I would say I have a few different categories. Um, I have a large part of my practice where I work with couples. Um, and the couples that I tend to really enjoy working with the most are couples who have been together for a significant period of time. So I have some couples who have been together, you know, like 20, 30 years. Um, and couples who, whether it be both of the individuals or just one of them, who have experienced some sort of trauma in their life. Uh, and so a lot of my field and focus is like trauma-based. 
Um, and so I do work with individuals primarily who have experienced some sort of trauma in their life. And then I have this little niche right now too of uh, working with preteens or teens who are primarily neurodiverse. And when I say that, I mean um, people and adults too who have things like um, ADHD and autism. Okay. So I kind of saying that out loud, it makes it seem like I'm kind of all over the place in terms of my practice. Um, but these are just kind of like subcategories that have just come up over the past three years that, that whether I enjoy it or just happen to do well with it. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like you're all over the place. Maybe somebody that's in the field may, may think that, but everything that you just mentioned are areas that, uh, especially right now in our country are, are definite, um, spaces that, that we need folks like you to jump in. Um, I, I don't think that there's enough focus placed on, especially preteens right now with the, with the way that social media is impacting their mental health. It's, it's crazy and no pun intended, but, um, you know, I have a 17 year old daughter right now that I struggle with, uh, keeping balance and making sure that, you know, I, she, she has a healthy dose of social media because that's what, you know, that's what her generation does but also making sure that it, it it's not dominating, um, you know, her day-to-day outlook on things. And, you know, I've, she's, she's done a pretty good job for herself, but seeing some of like, I'll every now and then I'll check in on her uh, Instagram and just seeing the, the, the level of delusion sometimes in, in people's comments, I'm just <laughs> like, Oh my God, <laughs> where are your parents? But yeah, I mean, I'm, it makes me smile that you're, you know, you're delving into that space. Yeah. And when it comes to working with like my preteens, teens, that is usually a, an area that I'm working on, like with the parents um, is, okay, boundaries around the phone, boundaries around social media. Um, and it's a tough one because kids today, they know technology better than their parents do. They know technology better than I do. Right. And so they do find ways uh, to get around parental controls, like to access TikTok, even if it's, you know, not installed on their phones or their devices, right. They get on their friends' devices who don't have controls or aren't locked down. And so it's, it's really hard for parents today to be able to monitor and regulate like what their kids have exposure to. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, I found out through my son is, um, kid, like you said, kids are, are super smart. And one of my son's friends had his phone taken away. This was a few years back, like probably before COVID. Um, and I knew that he had his phone taken away and, you know, my son's texting him and, um, messaging him and at, the, at that time it was an app called kick or something like that. I don't know. Um, and I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I see the, the parents at the soccer game and I'm like, Hey, didn't you take Anthony's phone away? Like, yeah, yeah. He's grounded. He's not going to get his phone back for a while. We actually suspended his line. I'm like, well, you know, Donovan's been 
been messaging him. What this kid did was he went to Walmart to get school supplies and bought a prepaid uh, cell phone. And you mm-hmm. can buy prepaid smartphones at Walmart for like 80 bucks. So, and and he just had it hidden in his room. They they went in and they found it tucked between his mattress and his uh, box spring. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, I, I never would have thought to do something like that when I was a kid. Like, if I'm grounded, I'm grounded. But it it's, it's amazing to me the things that these kids have available to them that, you know, they can get away with. That and sometimes like taking the phone away isn't always the best uh, consequence uh, because that is their lifeline to their, to their social group. Yeah. And, and often what I see too is like parents, they'll be like, well, I'm taking your phone away for weeks or a month. And there's a few things that can happen with that. One, they're going to be like, well, screw you. I'm going to go buy, you know, my prepaid phone. Um, They're going to get on their friends' phones or like that consequence is no longer going to be effective because it was, their device was taken away for such a long time that it just became ineffective. Like the point was lost. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. And again, I'm, I'm probably, I don't know, maybe. 15 years older than you, maybe. Um, for us, it was that, you know, my mom's unplugging the house phone and she's going <laughs> to use the one in her room if she needs to use a phone. But the the main phone in the kitchen, you know, if I'm grounded, I'm not using that phone. So, and it, you know, I wanted that phone bad. So I'm going to do all the chores and make up my grades so she can put that phone back in there. It's just different now. There's no way I was going to go mm-hmm. to Kmart or Sears and buy a phone and put it there. Yeah. And man, when like thinking back to my teenage years, I had a flip phone and I remember getting in trouble for, you know, because when you text back then they would charge you per text. And so, you know, running up like $20 on the phone bill, which was like, oh, such a big deal back then and getting the phone taken away. But I don't remember that being like that big of a deal because I was just going to go see my friends anyway at school. Or if I had a, com- I don't, I don't think I had a computer yet, but when I did get a computer, well, okay, who cares? Cause I can just log on to like my space and I can talk to my friends there or like, it just wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. She's dating herself with MySpace. <laughs> so. I I do have a question since you're in a, I mean, you're a therapist, but you primarily focus on, mm-hmm. on families and preteens. I, I would say I primarily focus on individuals and couples. Okay. Okay. Yeah. With trauma. Individuals and couples with trauma. Being a therapist and a veteran, I mean, I'm sure that your, your, uh, your profession, you could help other veterans like suffering with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you helped? Or, or counseled any veterans uh, suffering from trauma? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do have some clients who are veterans. Okay. And I think I'm, I'm trying to ask this question the right way. We well, can just throw it out there and we'll piece it together. Okay. So for the, I know I'll, I'll speak 
for myself because um, when I when I left service, I know that there was something different than when I went in. People around me knew that there was something different, but I didn't want to admit it. Um, I didn't want to go and seek help. Um, and you throw that term PTSD, uh, we throw it around, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of willy nilly, and, and we don't, we typically don't look deeper into it. You know, oh, you probably got PTSD because you went to Iraq or Afghanistan or, or wherever. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that it, it, it makes it difficult for a lot of veterans to go and seek help because they're just like, ah, oh, you know, I got P PTSD or it's kind of similar to, um, you know, that you're going to have bad knees if you were in the, in the military from running a lot. Um, mm -hmm. what suggestions do you have for family members or even veterans themselves that, that know that there's something wrong, but they're, they're hesitant to go and seek help? Yeah. So in some ways, this is a tough question. Um, and, and this is like, we have to look at the culture of the military first. And that is when you're in the military and maybe it's gotten better now. I don't know. Right. I'm not in, um, but this idea of getting support, getting help, it, it's not like you're sent this message that it's not okay, that it's stigmatized. Like, oh, if you go get help, then you're not going to be deployable or you're not going to be able to show up for your shift or you have to leave early. And for a lot of jobs in the military, like it, it's not easy to do that. Like it's not just easy when you're on swing shift to go to an appointment. Um, when you're like, man, I'm trying to sleep and then I'm trying to work 12 hours. Like there's just so many factors that don't make um, therapy, counseling, whatever you want to call it accessible while you're actually in, and it gets a really bad rap. And so if you're taught and you're learned that if you get help, you're taking away from the mission or from the team, or someone's going to suffer, like, why would you ever go get help? Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. Right. So then you leave the military, right? And you, at least this was my experience, right? I, it, I want to say it took me a few years before I felt like integrated with society again. Um, because so much of, and maybe not for, maybe not for everyone. I don't want to speak for everyone, right? But like so much of your identity is built into the military and the mission and like your function and your role while you're in. And so for me, it just, it did almost feel like a bit of, I have to like unprogram and figure out who am I? What's my life going to look like? What's important to me? What do I value? Um, right. Cause the military tells you what to value. Right. And so getting out of the military, knowing that there's this weird shift that you're going to experience, um, where you really have to reframe so much in your life. And I can speak about this now and like have that awareness, but like when you're going through it, you're just like, wow, I feel weird. Or, you know, I, maybe I don't have a sense of community anymore because that's also built in, in the military. You always have people, there's always people available. Um, and so there's a sense of, I think, isolation when you initially leave and have to rediscover and find, um, who you are, 
who's your community, what you're doing for a career. Um, and then let's maybe throw like a spouse or kids on top of this too. And so when you have, you're going through all that. And if we really focus on those who have spouses or kids, cause I think that's probably the majority of people, um, you're not going to be thinking about yourself or your needs. You're going to be thinking, how do I provide? How do I like make this transition? Absolutely. And I think that the identity piece probably, I mean, of course, if anybody could speak to it, it'd be you because most of your military career was overseas. So that was your sole identity as an American. They're wondering everywhere you go, they're probably wondering like, why is this American here? Well, I'm in the military, you know, so you have to announce Mm -hmm. that pretty much everywhere you've gone. Like, you know, maybe Shaw, not so much, but uh, Kunsan in Germany, in England, you know, that's why you're there. So that's your, that's a hundred percent your identity. For me, um, if I'm stationed, I don't know, in, in, at Fort Lewis in Washington state, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I leave the base and I'm at home. And unless you know that I'm in the military, I'm just a normal dude amongst the civilians. Mm. So I kind of have, I, you know, I have an avenue of escape in that aspect, even though I'm still active duty, but you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's no, that's a really good point that you bring up. Um, cause I wasn't even thinking about that. Right. And it makes sense. Right. Most of my time was spent overseas, um, where for people who do live stateside, yeah, they're probably going to have a totally different experience where they'd get to build community that is not just around the military. After 9-11 until probably 2011, 2012, that at that point, the, you know, that's the, the only community that you have because you're constantly deploying, you're constantly training um, stateside or overseas. So um, mm-hmm. it is something that we probably don't point out enough, um, you know, to, to teach military members when they're on duty to try to find some sense of balance, you know, maybe get out and um, get into the community, go and volunteer at an elementary school or um, a youth sports team or something so you can step away from uh, the military side so it's an easier transition when you leave. Uh, You know, I'm still, even today, I'm still trying to grasp um, how to to integrate a little bit more because I just think differently than everybody else. I, you know, um, I, it's not that I'm abrasive, but I mean, you served, you served for an extended period of time. Um, you know how it is. We don't sugarcoat anything. You know, there's no gray area. It's this or it's this. And I don't think that a lot of people can understand that. So that's what I struggle with. And I'm sure a lot of other Mm -hmm. folks do too. No, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I've, I've talked about, um, with clients before too, um, who have been in the military is this sense of, uh, you know, you, you have a purpose, right. You have, um, you're, what you're doing is contributing somehow to the overall mission. And especially like in some career fields, like if you, screw up like you could seriously put people at risk like for some roles right like if you screw up like people could die and so I think there is this uh different mindset and this level of severity 
that is taken. Um, and, and this was my experience in the military too, where, you know, at least of those around me, not, um, of those around me is, yeah, if you, if you, if you're indecisive, right. Like that could have serious consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, that's what, that's one of those things that, um, it's really, really hard to separate from when you, when you leave service where everything is, um, again, this or that, you know, if, if I make a mistake, mm-hmm. if I'm not calculated, um, bad things could happen. And so what would you suggest for, um, for folks that are thinking like that, that are, you know, maybe they've been out of the military for four or five, six years, and it's caused an issue with relationships at work, you know, maybe relationships in the mm-hmm. community where, um, you know, they, they need to be a little bit softer. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm laughing because this just brought up like one of my own experiences that I had in a work environment. Uh, cause I agree with everything you're saying. And I know that I have a tendency to show up in a certain way as well. Um, and I actually, I just laugh cause this actually happened to me earlier. Uh, this happened to me recently where I was trying, I was just trying to probably like over explain myself, um, to someone I was working for. And just share my perspective of, of an incident that had occurred and like where I was coming from. Right. So just trying to give an overall, like, you know, what my intentions were. And I was told, and I said, you know, I think it was probably coming up, you know, just based on like the culture that I've experienced and been accustomed to with being in the military. And then they told me, well, this isn't the military. <laughs> and, uh, that was basically like a conversation shut down of like, okay, you don't care what I actually have to say. Um, obviously I know this isn't the military. Obviously I know I'm no longer in the military. Um, just trying to, you know, explain and receive some compassion. Yeah. It's, and you know, it's one big reason. And I've said this a a bunch of times why I, I stick to doing Uber. Um, you know, I've tried to go the corporate route, but those similar conversations happen. You know, I'm, I'm not a water cooler type of person. Uh, when I step through those doors and I clock in, it's work. When I clock out, I'm going home. I'm not going to happy hour with you. We're not going to talk about family. Like, this is work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost relieving to hear you say this because I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, I, I have a very similar mindset. I mean, I work for myself. <laughs> like, that's not an accident. Like, that's for a specific reason. Um, and I think in the military, like, you do experience... It's almost, it's just the the level of professionalism that you are required to have at times, because obviously not everyone does this, but I definitely have experienced myself of like, uh, and based on the experiences that I had as well, where I'm going to keep things professional with you, which means you're not going to hear lots of details about my personal life, what I'm feeling, what's going on. Um, because that would just be inappropriate and that could get in a way in the way of like our working relationship, because whether I like you or not, I still have to show up and deal with you and interact with you. Yeah. 
Yep. And, you know, I used to get, it, it got so tiring, but I used to get this um, goofy question at least twice a month. I never had pictures of my family or accomplishments or anything like that on my desk. If it wasn't work-related, it wasn't going on there. And if it didn't need to be on my desk, it wasn't going to be there. You know, if I took mm -hmm. notes and I was done taking notes, then those notes went in the drawer or they went in the shredder. And I would always get this question from somebody. Oh, uh, when you leaving? What are you talking about? Well, you know, you, you don't keep anything on your desk. You must be uh, planning an escape or something. <laughs> like, no, man, I'm here to work. You know, well, you don't have any pictures of your, your wife or kids or anything. Well, yeah, because this is work. I have them at home. You know, well, mm -hmm. you know what? You don't you don't want to show off? What do you, no, <laughs> I'm here to work, man. And people just could not fathom that they're they're that I like to have that separation. You know, I don't think about work when I go home at all. Yeah. So just to like expand upon that a little bit more. What. Like, what is that? do like if you had brought a photo in like i guess i'm just trying to wonder like what would be the consequence for you you mean for if i if i had those those items on my desk yeah yeah i think it was it's it's kind of similar to you know being on a deployment and being on a mission if i have if i'm thinking about what my family is doing back home while i am working in a, in a combat zone. Mm -hmm. Um, now I'm taking a percentage away from what I'm supposed to be doing. The people that are around me that are relying on me. Um, and, and so I kind of carry that into everything I do. If mm -hmm. I'm on a task, I need to be 100% focused on that task or I'm cheating somebody out of something. Yeah. And so like, what, what would you be cheating them out of? Time, money, whatever, you know, if I'm in a sales role and I'm supposed to meet a certain quota um, and I need to be on the phone and I need to be dialed in and focused, but mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm looking over at my family pictures and I'm kind of, you know, Oh, look at this. I got this award, you know, a couple months ago. Cool. I'm employee of the month. Um, mm -hmm. Now that's taken away a little bit of focus of what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm not 100% locked into what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish. And so what would the consequence have been when you were in the military, like at a deployed location? Um, it could be a number of things, you know, um, I was an air traffic controller, so I got, Oh you know, yeah. <laughs> there okay. are things all over the airspace, artillery, um, you know, helicopters, weather balloons, uh, drones. Uh, and I got to keep all those things separated. And if, if mm -hmm. even a small fraction of my attention is, is deviated, um, it, it only takes a, a split second for something bad to happen in an airspace. So, yep. you know, I have to be dialed in. Right. Cause it could lead to death. It could lead to death. I mean, there's billions of dollars of equipment that, you know, yeah. is up, up there. Um, you know, and I just don't, I don't want to. I don't even want there to be the potential for something bad to happen. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the zone once I get into that facility. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this is where the military is so effective because they're, they're running this on fear of 
hey, I have to be focused, right? I can't have anything else get in the way because the consequence is severe. The consequence could be billions of dollars. The consequence could be like life, life or death. Mm -hmm. The consequence could be my career, right? Which is all is going to come back to fear-based. And just like you said of like, what could happen? Like what is the worst to happen? Or even when will that happen? Because we know that it happens, Mm -hmm. right? And so I can just relate to my own experiences so much of just that sense of fear and the severity of consequences where when you apply that to life now, it's hard to be able to trust that, hey, if I allow a little bit of my attention or focus to shift, that I'm not going to be as productive or I'm, you know, that something bad still won't happen. Yeah. Well, I now I'll share this. Not, I, you know, I, I hate talking about this, but um, not bragging, but I got almost 10,000 rides between, well, on both Uber and Lyft. So a total of 20,000 rides. Mm-hmm. I'm a five-star wow. diamond driver on Uber and a five-star platinum driver on Lyft. And that's unheard of to have that many rides and still be five-star. Um, but it's because I separate, you know, when I have a passenger in the car, that's my focus to get from point A to point B as safe and efficiently and effectively as possible. Um, if I'm in a conversation with a person and I'm but more focused on the conversation than I am on my task, uh, you know, if I'm in traffic and you know how crazy the drivers are in Phoenix. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If a split second and there could be a crash because I'm not paying attention and I know that the other drivers aren't paying attention most of the time. Um, but it, it translates into everything I do. And there's the consequence mm-hmm. is different in, in every, you know, in every lane, in every, every task that I'm doing. Like you, you asked, you know, at work, um, it could be the difference of me getting one sale over my, my metric and getting a big bonus or not hitting that. And then it's just a, a downward spiral from there. Um, because now I got to play catch up and I, you know, I, I got to work mm-hmm. two, three, four times as hard and I'm taking it home yeah. and now it's affecting my family. So I, I you know, I, I think about all of those things all the time and I just rather eliminate that opportunity than, you know, have to deal with that. Absolutely. And I think this conversation goes to show how it can be challenging to identify these things in our lives because, Hey, I'm rewarded, right? Like I'm excelling. Um, when I have this rigidity to my system, like really great things can happen. And so if I keep that system, the good things will happen. But if I deviate from that system, then I'm opening myself up to the, what could happen. And Um, my experience and my perception of obviously it's not going to be everyone in the military, but of veterans is like, yeah, we probably all have a sense of rigidity to the way that we operate because that's how we have been trained. Now, what, what do you think? Because I, I mean, I know what, what's contributed to my focus. Um, you know, I had one of those jobs where it's, I, I just can't turn it off, but for folks that, 
may not have had such a um, a rigid uh, MOS in the military, but they still had mm-hmm. to deal with the you know that that mindset. Um, one thing that I noticed a lot of veterans w- when they they come out and they're they're just let out of the box. They don't have the the walls around them. Um, it's mm-hmm. really hard for them to stay in that focused mind. Wh- how what do you think they should they should do to kind of either get back into that focus or um, retrain themselves to to lock back in? So I think this just comes down almost to human nature because I have clients who just struggle with this in general is it's hard to create your own routine and then stick to it right to like hold that accountability for yourself I think that's something that a lot of people just struggle with in general um because it comes down to wow there's so many different options or there maybe are so many different things that I could be doing or maybe even that I should be doing, um, that it can be hard sometimes to even figure out like, where do I go from here? Right. Like when you've been maybe told or you've been given limited options, it's much easier to adhere to that or to even make a decision of, you know, what is my life going to look like? But yeah, when those walls are just suddenly gone. Right. And I think they're like, I feel like the word of today is severity. Um, and severe is because that can feel severe, right? And not everyone is like this because I've met people who like the military just didn't work out for them because they didn't want to conform or they didn't do well with that sense of rigidity. But for those who do, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to navigate that. Um, I don't know. Like I always say to my clients, like, you know, let's create a routine, right? Let's um, start small and build upon it. But at the same time, like, I struggle keeping my own routine, right? I struggle keeping my own self accountable. Like I've been able to build supports around me that support me in doing that. Uh, But I don't, I think for most people, it's going to be like trial and error and finding methods that do and don't work for them. Yeah. Now, would you would you recommend they try it on their own or seek therapy and and work through it that way? I mean, I think it depends on like what they need to work through. Right? If we're talking about the military specifically, I personally have a perspective that I don't think anyone gets out of the military unscathed, um, whether it be just like a deployment or an adverse situation or sometimes like the mental games that leadership can play with you, which we could probably almost categorize as like emotional abuse at times. Um, and some people do experience, I mean, for some people it definitely is, we can put it in that abuse category. Um, right. Like there's so many things that one can experience that I really think that all people come out of the military, a different person or with new wounds that they need to figure out. So where this becomes an issue is um, in the military, right? We need to push our personal stuff aside. Um, The military does not want you to deal and cope with your feelings, right? My experience is they want us to be able to push that down so that you can get on, you can get through the mission because that's what comes first and your needs don't come first. 
And so suddenly you get out of the military and you can have like an uprising of just like, Ooh, I don't feel so great. Right. Maybe I'm feeling more tired. I'm feeling low. I, you know, I keep just ruminating on situations that happened to me in the past or, wow, I'm really struggling to like leave my house or when I'm around a lot of people, I, my heart starts racing and I become like, my body's physically shaking. Right. So they're having all these things, um, physically happening to them, or maybe even mentally with different thoughts or fears coming up. And you're just kind of like, what the hell is happening to me? Um, and that I would say, I think most people need to get mental health support, just even navigating that. Like we don't even have to like label it, but just understanding like what are feelings? How do I experience feelings? Oh, I'm having these bodily sensations because these are actually my feelings. Wow. Like who would have known? So one of the things that gets used the most in my office, I'll show, I know people won't be able to see it, but I'll show you is, oh, um, I have this pillow. Let me hit myself in the face. Uh, <laughs> it's the emotion sensation wheel. And this is the most important thing in my office. And it's used the most because it has different bodily sensations one can experience. And then it has um, your kind of the primary emotions, the ones that we're most familiar with like being happy, sad, anger, fear. And then it expands upon those of what else one might be feeling that is in a similar category. So like for anger, right? Everyone can say they're angry. That's usually accepted in our society of like, that's an okay emotion. You can be angry. You can be aggressive. Um, However, that is usually just a cover, right? That's the reactivity that we see because usually there's a lot more behind anger, like pain and feeling hurt, um, and feeling insecure. So I know I just kind of went on a tangent with that. No, 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 that's Um, perfect. But but even just understanding emotions, I feel like that's just where you have to start is like, what, what the heck are these things? What am I dealing with? What am I even experiencing before you can even ever think about getting to like a trauma reprocessing point. And when I say trauma reprocessing, I'm specifically referring to, um, people may have heard about EMDR. Um, that is a trauma reprocessing therapy. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, the military has a lot of acronyms. This career field, I feel like has just as many acronyms, like so many, so many things. Um, so yeah, we got to start with the basics. Yeah. And that's and I, what I say to my clients. I like that. The, now the emotional sensation wheel, is that something, um, like a, a chart that they can order or, cause I feel like that is a, a helpful tool, even without a therapist. Uh, you know, if there's somebody that just wants to, wants to understand their emotion, uh, you know, they can have that tool handy. Uh, but I, I mean, ultimately, for me personally, I do recommend um, seeking professional help as well, because I know even though I was reluctant, it has worked wonders over the past six, seven months for me. But if, you know, if somebody wanted to just, uh, before, you know, while they're trying to sort out their their own stuff, um, 
maybe look on Amazon or uh, for the emotional mm-hmm. sensation wheel? Yeah. So the what's known as like the emotion wheel, um, you can throw that in Google and you'll see all these colorful charts come up. Um, the emotion sensation wheel is a little bit different. Um, it's, I think people are less familiar with it. It was created by um, a counselor who, who lives in Seattle, um, who also makes a lot of really wonderful artwork about mental health. Um, and so her name is Lindsay Brahman. I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly, but she, um, she's on Instagram and I definitely recommend checking her stuff out because she has so many great little like fun drawings that will explain trauma that will just explain, um, like different mental traps that we might find ourselves within. So it's a really great, like educational, uh, Instagram to follow. Um, but yeah, if people do want the emotions, the emotion wheel, you can throw that in Amazon and Google, and you're just going to have so many different options come up. Um, and so being able to identify and explore emotions for yourself is really important. But then something that I think people forget about is, hey, if you have kids, that's actually also your responsibility to teach your children about emotional expression and what they are. Because from my understanding, because I end up teaching a lot of people, like they're not learning by their parents or they're learning adverse ways to experience emotions through their parents. Like, oh, I can yell and, you know, I can be angry and that's okay. And it's like, no, actually it's not like, you're just showing that you don't know what to do, right? That maybe, you know, um, you haven't been able to explore or you haven't found more healthy and effective ways to communicate how you're actually feeling in the moment. Um, so yeah, I teach, I end up, sometimes I feel like a teacher. I just, I, I teach a lot of people about emotions. No, it's great. Um, I mean, like I said, it, Stefan has, uh, my therapist has really helped me open up my mind to being, uh, being aware of my emotions and being more emotionally intelligent. And, uh, really it's helped my, it's helped me communicate better with my daughter and um, this is something I was going to mention that, that I'm glad you brought that up about with being able to help your children, um, navigate their emotions, uh, in a productive way. Um, I'm definitely going to order one of these so that I can, you know, before she heads off to college, she can be a little bit more emotionally aware too. Um, and with that, I think that that's a great tool for the season that we're in going into the holidays. Um, it's extremely stressful going from Thanksgiving right into the Christmas season. And then after when you start to get those credit card bills um, and you, you look at your, your checking account and you've just overspent, mm-hmm. do you have any suggestions for folks to navigate this season in a, in a healthy way mm-hmm. mentally? Yeah. So another thing that I talk about frequently in my practice are boundaries. Um, I think it's one of my most favorite things to talk about in general. And so when I say boundaries, because I think people, they have different perceptions of, of what that even means. Um, but when I'm referring to boundaries, I am viewing this as something personal to the individual. So like 
a boundary would be personal to myself. Um, this is like a limit. You could say a limit or a rule that I'm establishing for me. And so it's my rule, which means I have to enforce it and I have to keep myself accountable to it. So if I establish like a boundary for myself and I say, you know, we'll just do something super simple. Like, Hey, I am not going to spend over $400 for the holiday season. If I spend a thousand dollars, I just violated my own boundary, right? I didn't enforce it. I didn't hold myself accountable to it. And so that's like a simple way of looking at what a boundary is. Now, this gets really complicated when we add in fun family dynamics, um, right? And so fun really meaning just functional. Um, so having boundaries with family over the holiday season, for example, is so challenging. And, and again, like the boundary is something you establish for you or for your household or for, you know, your relationship. And so I'll throw another example out there. So let's say that you have your week of the holidays planned out. You invited a parent over for the holidays and then last minute they changed their holiday plan and they actually now want you to rework the holiday plans that you made. A boundary, if that person had was like, hey, I'm going to stick to my plan, then they would have to share with that parent, I hear that your plans changed. We're going to be doing this at this time. You're welcome to join. You don't have to, but this is what we're going to do. That's an example of being able to enforce the boundary. Now, I say this, I can say this easily, make it sound simple. It's not because in that moment, what's really happening is that person's experiencing all sorts of feelings wash over them, all sorts of different thoughts. And so, what can happen, especially in moments when you're trying to navigate, family or relationships around the holidays or even like spending, um, you might be emotionally offline and not realize it. So you could be outside of what I refer to as like your window of tolerance, your emotional window of tolerance. And, um, and that's kind of important to create an awareness too, is, Hey, if I'm in this place where I'm emotionally reactive right? I'm feeling lots of energy and feeling these really big emotions. I'm likely feeling overwhelmed, frustrated, just like distressed. And when you're emotionally reactive or elevated, that's not going to be the time to like enforce your boundaries or to have like difficult conversations with people in your life even if that's yourself. Yeah. And we see that a lot every single season, you, you know, or, yeah. or you, you know, somebody, or you've experienced it where, you know, you're, you're trying to enforce those boundaries. But like you said, you, you know, you, you may be offline and you, it's, it's just chaos in your mind. And now in trying to, to enforce that boundary, it's, it's a heated mm -hmm. argument and, now the family is, it, you know, the whole situation is messed up and you may be seen as at fault. Yeah, absolutely. Especially depending on the role that you've 
historically played in your family, right? So if your role has been that, oh, you're the problem, then yeah, like everyone's going to probably then find a way, especially if you're emotionally reactive, like, yeah, well, that's just because they've always been the problem, right? And so of course they would just do that, right? It comes to be like a family norm. Um, It's to be expected. Um, And so I just kind of want to provide this example too, like a, a way to not go about enforcing a boundary would be, you have to respect my boundary because no, actually that person doesn't have to respect your boundary. And so this is where it gets a little complicated, right? Is because it's, it's another, say it's like a parent, the parent, they have the autonomy to make the choice of are they going to respect you or not? And if they don't respect you, you then have to make some tough decisions. And and that might look like, okay, I'm going to visit my parent less frequently, or I'm actually going to only call my parent maybe once a month um, instead of every week, right? So you have to readjust your expectations in that relationship and with that person and have the awareness that, all right, they're not going to respect me. They're not going to respect this side of me or this part of me, which then brings up all sorts of other emotions, right? Of like pain, hurt. Yeah. Now, do you have any suggestions for, for people that want to create those boundaries to, to feel less anxious? Um, I, I know it, like you said, you know, it, if you, if you're not used to setting those boundaries or you're constantly worried about other people's feelings. Uh, it, it is extremely difficult to all of a sudden just start creating those boundaries and enforcing them. Uh, do you, like, do you have any suggestions for people that they know they need to do it, but they're just, you know, a little hesitant? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to creating boundaries in your life, I would say like, take it slow. Um, I would say really get an understanding of kind of what you're experiencing, what's happening and that change that you want to be able to make, right. To really have a clear understanding of what does this look like for me? Um, I think this is where I know a lot of people have different thoughts about journaling, but I think this is where like just being able to write stuff down can be really effective um, because we need to be able to process our experience before you might try to make that change in your life or to enforce the boundary. So I would say, you know, I mean, the holidays are just in a few days. Um, if I wouldn't necessarily put pressure on yourself to like make a change (laughs) right now. Um, if you're kind of like in the process of like, Hey, I, I, I actually only want to go over to my friend's house or over to my family's house for two hours instead of four hours. Um, I would say to that person to probably like have like, let, let the people know, whether it be family or friends know ahead of time, right. You can call them, you can text them, right. Just kind of say, Hey, I'll be over from this time to this time. Can't wait to see you, whatever it is. Um, if you are there, just have some flexibility, know that, Hey, if you actually end up having a good time, like it's okay to decide, 
I'm going to be here a little bit longer, but it's also okay to decide if you feel um, uh, discomfort or upset and, and actually realize, ooh, like this isn't comfortable for me. This isn't safe for me to be here more than an hour that you can leave. And I would just really encourage, especially like anyone and my clients that if you're starting to feel unsafe, like it's okay, you, you can leave. You mean unsafe emotionally? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Or physically or, you know, whatever, but usually emotionally safe. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's, it's really important, um, you know, this time of year, because like what we talked about, emotions are easily manipulated around the holiday season. And you can, you know, before you know it, you can be overwhelmed in, in doing things that you really um, had no plan of doing. And I know, like we discussed earlier, I mean, for us, it's, it's really, while it, it can be difficult, we are able to, to create those boundaries and navigate right through them. I know for Thanksgiving, I, I didn't want to do anything. I went and had brunch with my kids and I just went home and watched football. And I told a buddy of mine, um, you know, he's like, Hey, you got to come over, you know, at least just come have a meal, uh, maybe sit back by the fire pit. And as I'm on my way over there, he's like, Hey, you know, I cleared out the spare bedroom so you can stay the night. Like, no, I'm not staying the night and I'll, I'll be there for a few hours and then I'm going to go home. And that's exactly what I did. I know that, you know, he's the type of guy that's like, you know, I, it would have been nice if you stayed and hung out, but I understand there, the, there are people in, in your life that won't always react that way. And they'll, you know, make you feel terrible for leaving and taking care of yourself. Although people may believe it, it is, I don't ever think it is selfish to take care of yourself, especially when, I mean, you're the only person who's going to know what is best for you. Like no one else can tell you that. Not even a therapist. Well, depends on what it is. (laughs) (laughs) No. And I I mean, you're right. I think that that's another thing that we really, really need to, to stress to a lot of veterans as well. Um, because we've been in the role of serving, uh, we feel like we always have to put other people first. And, um, one thing that I've, I've learned over the past year is that, that no, you can't give any percentage of yourself unless you're at a higher percentage than what you're trying to, you know, give. Um, I know that I can't, I can't be there a hundred percent for my kids if I'm not at a hundred percent, which means I need to have rest and eat good and, you know, um, work out. One other thing that I wanted to ask about this, especially this time of year, um, are stress relievers. You mentioned that, that anxiety and that, that physical, um, those, those physical feelings that you feel when you start to, to mm-hmm. get, feel that emotion, um, spiral out of control. What suggestions do you have for people to kind of tamp that down before they get into a situation that'll just the, the, the spark will just turn into a forest fire? Yeah. Okay. So I'll probably throw this into a few different categories. Um, because we, there are a million and one different coping skills, right? The ability to deal and manage with how you're feeling now with there being so many things and options, this is where personalization is important because what works for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And so I always encourage my clients to try different strategies 
so that they can figure out what works best for them. So when it comes to just like overall coping and dealing over time with stress or with, um, you know, whether just different issues that you've experienced, it is about um, having these strategies become regular. So like you said, you mentioned like working out and sleeping, right? So I always first check in with the basics with my clients of, What does your sleep look like? Are you eating, right? Are you engaging in some form of exercise, even if it is just like stretching, right? We don't have to like go run, but some sort of like physical movement or even just getting outside and breathing some fresh air. And so oftentimes a lot of people are struggling with just those, right? Struggling, struggling with sleep, struggling with eating, um, struggling with being able to like work out or move their body in some sort of way. So when I can get my clients in a better routine of managing just like even those three things, oftentimes I will see before adding anything else, um, like a reduction in like stress, um, or just the ability to like have, you know, more capacity to deal with stressors in their life. So those are really important. Don't ever overlook those things. Um, when it comes to you're in distress and you need to shut it down pretty quick, one of my absolute favorite techniques is ice. Uh, getting ice or getting extremely cold water and putting that on your face. People, they also make these days like little like ice rollers or whatever for the face, but that is great to calm down your nervous system quickly. And so when we think of quick reduction of emotions, we want to think about changing our body chemistry. So that could even look like doing push-ups, doing some jumping jacks, like getting like just getting that energy like moving through your body. Um so those are some of the things that I tend to recommend in addition to breathing. I tell my clients all the time And I'm like, I don't care if this sounds dumb, breathe. When I say breathe, I'm not saying breathe through your chest. I'm saying really engage in some belly breathing. So to make this easier, instead of being like engage in some diaphragmatic breathing, um, I will have my clients like put their hand on like their stomach region, like their abdomen and really focus on when you breathe, you're moving your, you want your hands to move out, right? You want your belly to extend and then being able to fully release all of the air. Breathing is so important. And it is one of the best ways to cope and manage with anxiety, feelings of anxiety, stress, just like big emotions. You know, it's funny that you mentioned both of those things, breathing and ice. I had a friend that anytime she would start to get a little bit uh, overwhelmed with something, she'd put her head in the freezer and take deep breaths. Yeah, you can do that too. Didn't understand. I'm like, what What are you doing? You could definitely tell that after about 30, 45 seconds, you know, she was starting to calm down. Heart rate was, was down. Her face was starting to become less flush. And I never really thought about it, you know, or when people go in, mm-hmm. um, they they have a, a 
bad moment, you know, let's go and put some cold water, go straight to the bathroom and, and put cold water on your face. Never even thought that that was um, a therapeutic stress reliever. I thought it was just something that you were told to do, you know, to change mm -hmm. your mindset. I didn't know that it had a physiological effect. Yeah, no, it definitely has a physiological um, effect because I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it is uh, engaging like your nervous system. And I think it activates like your vagal nerve, something like that. Don't quote me on that though. Um, and so like there, there actually is, uh, you could say like science behind it. Um, and so if I have clients who, especially in the beginning where we're, they're learning how to manage and deal, I'll say like, Hey, if you're ever like in crisis, like go throw yourself in an ice cold shower. I know that can be tough at times living in Arizona when you don't get cold water in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's going to be like one of the quickest ways to like snap yourself out of it um, and be able to then make like whether that just be, hey, now I'm going to go to sleep and try to like sleep through this um, or hey, okay, now I feel like I could actually call someone. Um, it's just to really level out that intensity. That's a good one. And uh, hopefully people that are listening, that's it's free. So, you know, you start to feel mm -hmm. a little stress, just reduce your temperature breathe i also just to just also throw in i also just love telling my clients just go outside take a lap breathe uh, especially right now in arizona it's actually nice to be outside and so really just try to use that um to to yeah be able to change you know it changes your environment getting that fresh air you can there's so many other things to focus on to get outside of your head as well yeah Moving right along with that, the effects of physical fitness on um, on your mental health. Uh, can you can you mm -hmm. talk about the importance of that? Um, and and just, I mean, I, I know a lot of people don't necessarily want to go and get a gym membership or anything. But when you talk about physical fitness, they that's the first thing they think. Oh, I got to lift weights. I got to get on the treadmill. I got to do um, just some simple things that people can do daily to to help um, alleviate stress and, and kind of, um, improve their mental health. Yeah. So again, exercise being one of those things of exercise, sleeping, um, eating, but exercise is very important. Research has shown that exercise is effective in reducing, uh, just overall, whether it be, you know, thoughts and feelings, depression, anxiety, uh, stress. So this can be adapted really for anyone, right? So even if you do have maybe some like physical limitations or challenges, whether it be, Hey, I'm going to stretch, I'm going to do yoga. I'm going, maybe it is just like, Hey, I'm going to get like a free weight and just like use my arms or legs or, you know, whatever you want to do. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go swimming. Um, there's so many, I'm going to go play pickleball, right? Like there's so many different ways to engage in an activity. Also being able to engage in activity that can involve others or a sense of community. Um, and so again, it's just, a, it's something that should not be overlooked. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that <laughs> I don't know how many folks, you know, that 
um, you served with or you know from the you know that served in the military for an extended period of time, they get out and they're just overdoing PT. And they've put on, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 pounds, and they just look like a completely different person than when they were in uniform. Um, and, you know, they, they may have suffered trauma while in. And like you said, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say 99% of the people that served in the military um, come out with some sort of emotional, mental um physical trauma and they the one key element that they should be focused on is physical fitness and they just let it go and it compounds that mm-hmm. um but i'm i'm glad that an actual professional is saying this because some, some you know for the lay person when you tell somebody hey man maybe you know just take a walk or go get on a treadmill mm-hmm. for 40 45 minutes they may think that you're trying to shame them yeah. And I think that keeping in mind that we don't have to be severe with these things. We don't have to take these to the extreme, right? Whether it be, Hey, once a week, if you start at once a week or you're doing it every day or every other day, if you're doing it great, if you're engaging it in some way, great, right? Like I think we tend to be so critical of what we're doing in ourselves that that can actually stop us from taking action um, or doing the thing, right? Because we're just stuck in our heads of like, well, I'm not going to be able to do it, right? Or I'm not going to be good at doing it. Or, well, it's not, I'm not as good because I'm not doing it enough. Just do it. Like, it's going to be okay. I like that. You're going to find your way. Yeah. And that's again, that's something that has been drilled in our head in the military. You know what? Do it. You're here. Do it. I I have one final question for you. Um, and this is something that I struggle I've I've struggled with over the years. Um, again, you know, I'm I'm somebody that just is no nonsense. I don't really there's no gray area. It's this or this, and I can read right through <laughs> BS. Um and it, it, this has been a it's been something that I've I've noticed a lot over the past maybe eight ten years, of the mm-hmm. sort of insincere insincere or fake, thank you for your service. Um, I think that that mm-hmm. that's one of those things that will ruin my day faster than anything else. Is when it's you know I I can tell that this person wouldn't speak to me ordinarily, but the moment they they find out that I served. Um, it's, oh, you know, thank you for your service. And it's that you can just tell that it's insincere. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever get those, but um, a lot of veterans that I talk to, they've even shied away from talking about their military service because they want to avoid those. Um, is there anything that you can suggest to yeah. kind of deal with that? Yeah. So I'm also going to throw in what it's like for female veterans when they think like if uh, <laughs> if you're whether it's a spouse or a friend and they think that the other person serves. So I get that all the time with my husband. Like they, they look at him or they think that he was the veteran and it's like, no, you got to talk to me, buddy. Yeah. Uh, and so just to, uh, yeah, acknowledge that. Cause it, it can be frustrating at times. Um, I am the type of person where I think when I have that sort of, recognition, I just feel awkward. 
Um, and I have like spoken to others about this and read about it on like forums of like, what do you do when someone does say that to you? Cause maybe you don't want it. Right. Or maybe you're not actually proud of your service or you just had such terrible things happen to you that it, it's something that, um, is distressing when it comes up, right? Like these are things that people who are outside of the military don't understand it, like aren't going to think of, um, because I think there is this portrayal of, oh, if you serve in the military, like you are so proud of it. And, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to you in your life. Um, and so I like to think that I have been in positions to say, actually, no, it's, that's like a false reality, right? That maybe that's what some people experience, but not what everyone experiences. And um, when that personally happens to me, sometimes I say thank you. Or one of the things I had read that I felt pretty good about saying back was just like, thank you for the support, right? Because, hey, if you're supporting the military, you're supporting veterans, great. Like, you know, I would hope that everyone, even though not everyone does, would have that outlook, right? Um, I also like to just kind of remember in those moments, it's not about me. Whether it feels like it is or not, it's not about me. That's that person, their response and whatever that triggered or activated for them, whether it be, oh, like my dad served or, um, you know, they're just feel patriotic of the United States, right? Like they're coming from an experience, a lens that you're unaware of, but it's going to feel like it's about you and it's not. That's a great point. Um, I think, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. And moving forward, I probably will approach it that way. Uh, you know, I, I typically, do, I say thank you or thank you for your support. Um, you know, I've gotten past the really looking too, too deep into it. Like, why is this person really thanking me for my service? If they didn't know I served mm. you know, and they saw me in the grocery store, they wouldn't speak to me. And, you know, I, I have to take it, take that part out and make sure, make sure that I'm aware that it's not about me. You know, there, there is something that they, they felt, like you said, that, that triggered that salutation. So I, I probably, I need to just be appreciative that they're even thanking me. Yeah. I mean, you could be appreciative. I mean, you don't necessarily have to be right. It could just be, um, right. That's their reaction, their response, right. Most things in life, right. We're all just reacting and responding to things and this is them. Right. And that actually is outside of me. I have no control of that. I have no influence of that. Like that is them and their stuff. Victoria, I do want to thank you for for joining. I really, really want to do this again. Um, the the next time, I want to hopefully we can dive a little bit deeper into um, some military specific stuff that actually I'm sure you probably have um, folks that you served with uh, deal with it. Um, I know that some of my family members had to deal with like things like. Um, MST and racism in the military, things that also affect, mm -hmm. you know, a, a person directly, it, sexism in the military. I mean, you're a female in the military. My daughter actually was thinking about going into the Air Force, <laughs> but I had, you know, well, let's, let's focus on something else. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe we can, we can link back up and, and get into um, some deeper topics uh, 
like that. But this mm-hmm. was fun for um, just getting some information out there and letting people know that it is okay to feel the way you feel. Um, and there are things out there, ways to to help and and resources out there. But I do want to thank you again, Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think this was just kind of a great way to like break into these topics because I'm sure as you've even just been able to kind of sense from this conversation, there's so many different avenues that we can like dig deeper into or go down. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's so much to go through. And then just also want to highlight just a few resources. Um, so, you know, if you are like, Hey, I think therapy could be for me, or, you know, I've been experiencing some things that I just don't know how to deal with. Just know, like, you don't have to have a problem to go to therapy. Um, it's not like a prerequisite to, to go or to be, um, to, to see someone. Um, but if you are ever in crisis, um, or even if you're not in crisis, but you're like, I'm having some scary thoughts right now. I don't really know what to do with all the things that are coming up. Um, just know that the, the crisis line, the national like suicide crisis line, that number is so much easier now and it has changed. So it's, um, nine, eight, eight, instead of that super long number that it used to be. Um, most of the time, I'm pretty sure you can call or, you know, there's so many now, um, text options available. Um, if you are like, Hey, I do want to explore therapy services. Um, and you're able to access resources through the veteran affairs. That could be one way to seek out a therapist is someone at the VA. Or if you're like, Hey, I want to use those benefits, but actually I don't want to see someone at the VA cause I don't like going there. Um, or whatever the, the reason may be, um, there are community care options that they can link you with. So you could see a therapist in the community but the VA will pay for it. If you're like, nah, I don't want anything associated with the VA. Um, there are different routes to go and find a therapist. One of my favorite websites is checking out psychologytoday.com. You can filter based on your area, based on your price point, based on if you're wanting to use insurance benefits. And it really tailors um, really your criteria of what you want in someone and gives you those options. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you again. I, I also know um, one other, and this is something that I've used in the past, um, or actually for um, uh, couples therapy. Uh, Wounded Warriors helped me find a therapist. Mm. So if you are um, a member of Wounded Warriors, uh, you can reach out to your counselor uh, there, find a counselor in your area, and they will be able to link you up with somebody. But um, again, thank you so much, Victoria, for giving us your time today. And um, I'll be I'll be reaching out to you. All right. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care.